You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Happy 242nd birthday, America. My guests Michael Goldfarb and Brian Klaas will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including NATO's ongoing bracing of itself for next week's summit, Poland's determination to put troublesome judges out to pasture, and US President Donald Trump's affirmative action against affirmative action. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Michael Goldfarb, author and broadcaster, and Brian Klaas, fellow in comparative politics at the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Welcome both. And we will start by anticipating the degree to which every non-American member of NATO is not looking forward to next week's summit of the organisation in Brussels. US President Donald Trump, never a fan of this or indeed any alliance, has been scaling up both his rhetoric and demands, doubtless encouraged by new National Security Advisor John Bolton whose preferred model of international cooperation is one in which everyone else does what the United States tells them. President Trump has said before and is saying again that NATO's other 28 members are feckless freeloading welchers, or words to that effect. Um, Brian, first of all, do we think he has yet entirely grasped how NATO works? No. Um, He keeps on talking about how they don't pay into NATO uh, adequate sums. Now, I actually agree with Trump on one thing about this, which is that I think that people who have countries that have made a commitment of 2% defense spending should spend 2% on defense. This is 2% of their GDP. Exactly. Um, that being said, the way he's going about it is extremely stupid and counterproductive. Not only does it make it more difficult for governments in the European Union and other parts of NATO to actually hit those targets because Trump is so toxic in those domestic constituencies, but also the way that he talks about NATO members and also the fact that he's imposing tariffs on them means that there is actually a major rift forming at the core of NATO, which is Vladimir Putin's long-term goal, is to drive a wedge between the transatlantic alliance and to splinter the United States from its European allies, which basically has been impossible up until Trump and now is becoming much more likely heading into this meeting. Uh, Michael, if it wasn't Donald Trump making this point, would it be more apparent that there was a point here? Is there an argument which holds that since 1949, the rest of the Western world has been kind of putting its feet up while the United States underwrites everyone else's national defense? Yeah, but I mean, it's not been a gift, has it? I mean, there's a quid pro quo across a wide range of issues that have nothing to do with national security and defense. And I mean, individual nation security, not American national security. Um, You know, America, after the war, was in the position to reorganize the economic institutions that run that that oversee global trade continues up until Donald Trump to do that. I mean, there's a, a wide range of quids and pro quos. And I mean, I, I was thinking about this just yesterday, and it was not even knowing that we'd be talking about it today, is that can you imagine a world in which the American nuclear umbrella wasn't over Europe, 
And uh, yes, Britain has a nuclear deterrent, and so does France. But the real umbrella, the big shade, comes from America uh, during the Cold War. Can you imagine uh, half a dozen wealthy European nations, each trying to get its own nuclear weapon? I mean, the whole non-proliferation world exists because America has been able to put this nuclear umbrella around Western Europe. Um, so I think that it's a bit naive which isn't to say that Democratic presidents as well as Republican presidents have asked Germany, which doesn't, and other countries, which don't, um, to perhaps, you know, pony up their fair share. And more importantly, in that brief 15-year window when the American, the Pax Americana was really at its height after the collapse of the Soviet Union, did they provide a lot of troops when we were trying to bring separate the warring parties in Bosnia? Not really. Do do they? You know. So it, it it's a very complicated picture, and without doubt in need of reform. But you know, Trump isn't about that. He's not capable of understanding what reform is. He's about babies bathwater, and getting a lot of headlines. Uh, in conjuring the spectacle there of a world without NATO, you have, and I thank you for this, inadvertently trailed this weekend's coming edition of The Foreign Desk, which considers exactly that prospect uh, that's live at midday uh, on Saturday on Monocle 24. But Brian, it's always the interesting question where, where, when Trump decides he wants to change things, uh, exactly what it is he wants to change them to. Do we have any idea, possibly a better question, does he have any idea what he would prefer NATO looked like? No. I think he has an aversion naturally both to Europe and to multilateral alliances. So NATO is something that hits two of those buttons, obviously. But I think, you know, when we zoom out on this question, one of the things that I find really striking, I wrote a piece uh, for the Washington Post about a month ago when it was the D-Day anniversary. And you think about what, what, what D-Day was all about. You have America, Canada, the UK landing in Europe to fight dictatorial tyranny. And you know, these countries banding together, sacrificing together, creating eventually the Western alliance out of that conflict. And then now you have a president of the United States who is attacking Canada, attacking the UK by with rhetoric and also with tariffs in and praising dictatorial government around the world. It's a reversal, not just of values, but of geopolitical alliances. And it's a striking moment where everything is now open to debate, right? I mean, if we have a, a moment where Trump goes into this one-on-one -on -one meeting with Vladimir Putin and says, it's okay that you annex Crimea, the fundamental principle of international relations will crumble, which is basically that you cannot change borders by force. And that has kept a reasonable amount of territorial integrity and peace since World War II. So we have so much up for debate in such dangerous ways being determined by a person who is an unhinged and ill-informed, reckless man. And that's very dangerous. On that subject, Michael, does doubt such as that which Donald Trump is sowing in and about NATO make likelier or unacceptably likely the prospect of some sort of conflict even by accident if, say, Vladimir Putin decides that there's never going to be a time like the present to see how serious NATO actually is about the whole collective defence thing? What if, you know, unmarked Russian vehicles start appearing uh, on the, the eastern borders of Estonia and Latvia? Um, is that a potential concern? Uh, well, you know, that's a very interesting question, Andrew, because a decade ago, when um, Putin began to consolidate his power 
and you, you know, there was an attack on the banking system, a cyber attack. It was like, um, how can I describe it? It was a dress rehearsal for a potential cyber attack on the Western banking system. There was a lot of discussion. And, you know, and, and I did, I, I often asked um, think tank bods and particularly people, you know, from um, the Baltics and Ukraine and Poland. I would say, do you really think NATO would go to war if Vladimir Putin sent Russian tanks into the Baltics. And 10 years ago, I would have said, no, I don't think so. I think they would have sought a negotiated settlement. Now, I think it's even less likely. On the other hand, um, I don't see what's in it for him in the near future. He seized back the, you know, what he what Russians would regard as, you know, the Russian part of Ukraine. And certainly people in Western Ukraine would regard it as the Russian part of Ukraine, although they think it should all be one country. Um, so I think it's a difficult question to answer realistically, because I don't think realistically Putin is there yet. On the other hand, a weakened NATO absolutely cannot respond. And with this president having... I mean, Brian, you must be as astounded as I am. They are planning on the 16th of this month to send all the interpreters out of the room, all the minute takers, everyone out of the room. It'll be like Carla debriefing a, a British spy in a John le Carre book because his asset is now the president of the United States. I mean, I, I can't imagine what could possibly go wrong. Uh, we will return to that one doubtless uh, before and shortly after it's happened. Uh, for the moment, we'll take a look at Poland, where the country's senior most judge, Chief Justice Malgorzata Gersdorf, arrived for work this morning as usual. This should not be news. However, she was doing so in defiance of the introduction of a new law requiring judges to retire at 65, which is Chief Justice Gersdorf's present age, funnily enough, instead of the previous 70. There have been sceptical souls who have suggested that this regulation is less to do with encouraging fresh thinking on Poland's benches than it is to do with the desire of Poland's government to stack the country's courts with political allies. Uh, Brian, this is possibly a silly question, but nonetheless it must be asked, is this an honest, well-meaning reform or the purge it would appear to be? It is the latter. Um, and the reason I know that is because this is not an isolated incident. Poland's government has continually taken authoritarian-style steps in what it calls reforms and what scholars of democracy would call democratic backsliding or creeping authoritarianism. And this is a problem not just in Poland, but also especially in Hungary. And the EU is facing a moment of truth where it determines whether or not it's going to have the spine and the backbone to push back against this and, and try to actually impose real consequences on uh, governments that try to erode democracy within the European Union or whether it accepts this as a new normal. And that's why all of these stories are sort of intertwined because the EU has less latitude to push back on Eastern Europe's creeping authoritarianism because of Brexit. It's got a lot of political capital it needs to spend there. It also has less political capital to spend there because of this NATO battle where it's trying to preserve international security. So all of these things happening at the same time, you feel like the scaffolding of the international order is cracking. And, you know, it's going to have serious consequences. Member states of the European Union should not be able to inch towards authoritarianism without consequence. And yet that is what we are seeing. And I am pessimistic that it will change in the next year.
Um, Michael, what is it we're failing or have failed to understand about Poland and also of Hungary, which is similar in all sorts of respects? These were the two countries that chafed most obviously uh, and most courageously, it has to be said, under the authoritarian regime of the Soviet Union. Um, And having sort of got away from that for 20 odd years, uh, appear to be retreating into a version of it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I... I don't know. I mean, I've, I've reported from both Poland and Hungary within the last five years. And at one level, I think the further west you go in Europe, the more, um, I don't want to say emotional, but I think some of the reporting is, is quite flabbergasted simply because you think, geez, these are the last countries that would want to slide into authoritarianism. And especially with, at the, in the case of Hungary, with the encouragement of Vladimir Putin. I mean, Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin are in touch. On the other hand, within those countries, I do think that um, there is a democratic you know, mandate for what's happening. And this is a real problem for the European Union because, um, you know, the, you can vote you can vote democratically for authoritarianism and get it. And, you know, you can vote democratically for ethno-nationalism, which is what they've got in Hungary. And you can genuinely get it. They have it in Poland as well. So on the one hand, it's very upsetting. On the other hand, it is democratic. And I do think that the processes of democracy are sufficient still that, uh, you know, bad economy, the usual reasons why people turn on a government can reassert themselves. But I think it's a very dodgy moment. And just to add, I really worry that that this stuff going on in Poland is a dry run for Trump to try and get all, all the 80-year-old liberals who are left on the Supreme Court in the U.S. off so he can apport, uh, appoint even more 50-year-old ultra-conservatives. I mean, Brian, is there a, a wider, perhaps even global phenomenon going on here? We, we talked when we were discussing NATO at the top of the programme about uh, the institutions which have underpinned uh, the global order, certainly since the end of World War II. Have, have people begun to take them for granted? Is, has there been a general forgetting of how difficult they were to assemble uh, and what life was like before them? Absolutely. And I think that the, this is where you see some really impressive research that's that's very scary from people like Yasha Monk uh, at Harvard who show that effectively support for democracy is lowest among young people and highest among older people because older people have lived through a period in which that was actually at stake and younger people have not really seen what authoritarianism can do. And so, uh, you know, you have this global shift that's happened. For the last 12 years, we've had a global decline of democracy. Every year, the world has become less democratic and more authoritarian, according to Freedom House anyway. And beyond that, you have a global shift in political appetite to support democracy abroad. So you have Trump actively supporting authoritarian leaders, congratulating them for rigged elections, congratulating them despite human rights abuses. Britain is worried about Brexit. The EU is worrying about authoritarianism on its own borders and also Brexit. And as a result, that means that the Western forces that generally support democracy in the rest of the world are becoming diminished while China and Russia are becoming bigger players. And so I don't think this is going to end anytime soon because these trends are multi-year trends. And as a result of that, I think there's a major foreign policy shift, not just of the institutions, but of the political will that backs democracy and makes it difficult for people or countries like Poland to actually 
engage in these authoritarian reforms. Um, and so, you know, this is a, a striking shift in, in geopolitics. And I'm worried that we are in this midst of a two to three year cycle of something that could be as significant as the end of the Cold War in terms of how it shifts geopolitics. Uh, there's a, just a final thought on this, Michael. There's, there's a difficulty, isn't there, when addressing things uh, such as the phenomena that any any attempt you do make to do so tends to actually make it worse. They, ha- they have a, a, a tendency, I think, sentiments of this kind to feed on opposition. And the EU uh, is now in the position of having, is trying to bring legal action against Poland. But that is just going to make it worse, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Again, this the, the dynamics within the EU, right? People who aren't living inside the EU don't understand. The EU doesn't have a great many tools in the toolbox to, to force changes one way or another. They can withhold structural funds. And Eastern Europe, the, the, the accession countries, still need the, that money. And I imagine they'll use it. But in the end, they, they don't have anything like decisive tools to shape public opinion. However, the populists, the ethno-nationalists in Poland and Hungary can say, oh, look at the EU. But they're, in two, they're, they're, they're caught in the middle, too, because what would happen if they left the EU? I mean, do they want to go back to being under the Russian umbrella? I don't think their people want that either. It's just, it's just the way the democratic process is working in the second decade of the third millennium. Well, on that happy note, uh, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Goldfarb and Brian Klaas. Coming up next, Donald Trump has been having ideas again. Summer is finally here, and so is Monocle's bumper July-August double issue. This is when we zero in on quality of life and cities, why we love them, what makes them actually work, and how they need to improve. As always, we reveal our ranking of the top 25 cities to live in worldwide. Find out if your city makes the cut. And for the first time, we present our manifesto for creating a more relaxed city. A guide to breathing in and lightening up. And a celebration of everything from taking your kit off to making a bit of a racket. In the affairs pages, we meet the urban heroes giving back to their hometowns. While in design, we take a closer look at greenery in the city and how to do it right. Elsewhere, we take a dip in Geneva's top swimming spot, we tuck into some northern Spanish grub, and we sit down for a mass with the locals in a few Bavarian beer gardens. Prost! That's all in the July-August issue of Monocle on newsstands everywhere now. Or head to monocle.com to become a subscriber. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Michael Goldfarb and Brian Klaas. Now, it is not news that US President Donald Trump is a subscriber to that curiously popular school of thought which holds that heterosexual white men are a cruelly oppressed and marginalised cohort, their dreams and desires crushed by the entirely imaginary apparatus of oppression known to those who fear it as political correctness. Accordingly, Trump's administration is to undo a bunch of policies aimed at promoting diversity in universities. Affirmative action, as it is or was known, was enthusiastically promoted by Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, which is probably where the search for motive can end. Uh, Brian, did it work, basically? Did it do what it was supposed to do, and was that basically a good thing? Well, you did have uh, increases of admissions for uh, historically, um, you know, discriminated against minority groups in the United States. I I think one of the things that people may not realize outside the U.S. is that we have 
education as sort of a mirror of inequality in society because of the way that the funding model works for uh, public education from childhood up through until university. So in other words, most education funding is not from the federal government. It's from state and local governments in the United States. And a lot of the models uh, involve property taxes being tied to the level of funding that you get for schools. So if you have a poor area, that tends to have worse schools than a very affluent area, which obviously entrenches inequality in society and it entrenches uh, educational opportunity. And so the idea behind affirmative action was we have a seriously unequal society. Let's try to use education as the sort of lever to, to change that. And now you're going to go back to a system in which um, you know, that fundamental inequality, I think, is entrenched rather than uh, dealt with in any sort of systematic way. Michael, is, is, is there a non-Donald Trump argument against affirmative action? Well, you know, it's interesting because before Donald Trump, had even I th- Brian will correct me on the dates, I think even before Donald Trump had thrown his hat in the ring, the Supreme Court um, had a ruling in 2015. You'll know the name of the case. I don't. Um, this, this is a story that goes back to the 1960s when... Brian hadn't been born yet. And um, (laughs) affirmative action was a remedy that was devised during the great civil rights era of the 1960s to, you know, jumpstart several hundred years of discrimination by affirmatively admitting African-Americans into universities, breaking down barriers at mostly state universities, not at Harvard, which is private, and especially voting. Voting came first before education. And in 2015, I think it was, the Voting Rights Act had a provision that in the states of the old Confederacy, there had to be what was called pre-clearance. The federal government had to have final sign-off on all of the voting laws in the southern states. And in 2000, uh, Brian's looking online, folks. He'll, he'll tell us in a second. The Supreme Court ruled, well, 50 years on from that, we no longer need it. Equality has been achieved. African Americans have the right to vote in all jurisdictions, so we're going to remove preclearance. That was the first step in dismantling affirmative action. And this is before Donald Trump became president. So there has been strong pressure to roll back affirmative action, and particularly in education, for quite some time now. I mean, it's been challenged in the courts in the 1980s. There was a late 70s, early 80s, there was a court, uh, court case. Guy didn't get into medical school because he was on the bubble for acceptance and his place went to a young student of color. He sued. I didn't get in because I was white. The courts did not settle in his favor. Affirmative action remains in place. It is an imperfect remedy to what was a horrendous flaw in America's design, which was, let's have slavery. And, you know, I think the jury should be out amongst honest people as to whether affirmative action is still needed. It obviously is. At a place like Harvard, which is the source of today's story, Harvard is a private university. Um, It has its criteria. In the present moment, immigrants of Asian-American backgrounds are killing on that criteria, and they're having to leave very qualified students out in order to bring affirmative action people in. Um, It's incredibly confusing, but it's the kind of confusion that's of a category that it should be settled privately and not through the courts and certainly not by presidential diktat. Uh, Brian, do do you imagine that Donald Trump has thought any of this as far through as both you and Michael just have? Or is this one of those things where he's just going, Barack Obama was for it, I am therefore again it? 
Well, I think it's it's partly that, but it's also I think Jeff Sessions, uh, the Attorney General, who has very strong views on this. Um, He's and from, has, Alabama, from Alabama. From Alabama, and has very. Uh, a very divisive racial history of himself in his own uh, political career prior to being a, a senator. Um, I believe that you were referencing Fisher v. v. University of Texas. There you go. In June of 2016, which basically ruled that there was it's acceptable to use race as a as a form of or as a criteria in admissions. But the I, decision you know, upheld by the outgoing Justice Kennedy. Exactly. If I recall rightly. Yes, and so now you'll have uh, him going out, somebody who probably views that issue differently coming in, um, and it is likely that there will not be any sort of of constitutional protection for that policy. Okay, well, finally tonight, it is, of course, July the 4th, so happy Independence Day to all our American listeners, and congratulations on freeing yourself from the yoke of life beneath the rule of a capricious demagogue who believes himself above the law, is of questionable competence to command, and owes his prominence principally to fortunate accident of birth. You all dodged a bullet there, and so forth. Um, What our listeners unfortunately cannot see uh, are Brian's outstanding socks, um, which are stars and stripes pattern. Uh, I believe. Is, is, is this your way of observing your country's National Day? Yeah. Uh, I've got my got my Stars and Stripes socks on. I'll probably watch a baseball game later, um, <laughs> which is actually a day game. So the Minnesota Twins are playing at 9 p.m. London time, and I'll be watching. And uh, that's the most uh, Americana I can get uh, here in London, I think. Uh, Michael, resplendent, as always, in your Make America Great Again baseball cap. <laughs> uh, uh, there is a lawsuit coming your way, maybe. That's the most American thing you can do, you know, is sue someone. Uh, apart from suing me for that gratuitous slight upon your character, how have you been observing July 4th? I have been nursing a hangover following England's first victory on penalty kicks because I'm, in, I'm a a dual, I, in a World Cup. I am a dual citizen. So I've decided, I, I decided last night I'll, I'll spend July 4th hungover celebrating England. <laughs> um, it does prompt a number of, uh, there are more serious questions, I guess, to be asked. Uh, Brian, I'll, I'll put them to you first. Does it feel different these last couple of years than it, it may have done previously? Since 2016, it does feel different. Um, I, I think it's one of those things where you're a little bit more sheepish about being American uh, when you're abroad. Uh, since I live abroad, that's a problem. <laughs> um, it's also just, you know, there's there's a thing where, where, where what I think happened to me right after November, uh, November 8th, 2016, was a wake-up call that the country that I thought existed doesn't exist. And I think that was the hardest thing to internalize as an American abroad or just an American who thinks that what's happening right now is, is beyond the pale. Because, you know, I, I, when I was in the U.S., I was often very critical of the government. And then when I moved abroad, I started be, basically being an apologist for the U.S. and trying to explain it to people and saying, look, it's not that bad. There's all these things you may not have considered. That's a lot harder to do these days. I mean, it's just it's, you know, after things like Charlottesville last August, where, where Trump effectively you know praised people who are marching with neo-Nazis and, and the KKK. What do you say as an American when people say, how can you how can you have 40 percent of your population support this person? I don't have an answer to that question. And that's where I think it's it's very uncomfortable to have this sort of you know deep seated feeling that I am proud to be an American because I think the country has accomplished a huge amount and stood for a lot of very important things throughout its history, but in this moment, uh, as I said, a bit more sheepish. Has it been the same for you, Michael, as as an American abroad? Is there any part of you that has been tempted to sort of hoist the maple leaf flag in your front garden and pretend it's got nothing to do with you? I'm married to a Canadian, no. Um, <laughs> um, you know, picking up on what Brian said, I have a 
piece today online in the Financial Times. Uh, go behind the paywall. You can get there. You can figure it out and get it for free. Look, um, in, 1960, in 1968, when I was um, just finishing high school, the country seemed to be on the verge of civil war. But there were real external issues behind that. There was the war in Vietnam. It was a draft. Half a million guys were in Vietnam. My draft number was 63. If I didn't have a student deferment, I would have gone. There's, you know, it's that kind of thing. There was race. There were, the country was really falling apart. Again, it feels the same, but you don't have anything like Vietnam. And you don't have anything, and, and for all the racial tensions, you don't have cities burning to the ground. You haven't had two great leaders murdered in the last six weeks, or six months. Um, and yet it feels the same. And I think people are being driven to this through media. And, and here's the interesting thing about Trump is that he has a feral understanding, you know, a kind of animal understanding of how to communicate and push buttons through a camera or through the, you know, the Twitter machine. And it's driving the country further and further apart. And yet at the same time, it's, it's substantively different than it was in 1968. And I don't I, you know, I can't tell whether it's an emotional feeling of being on the edge of civil war or not. But whatever it is, Americans really need to get to grips with it because the country is in a socially, not economically, socially in a dire, dire place. Just finally, a short answer needed to a big question, Brian. But is there is there scope for redemption or hope in the idea that that old school idea uh, of American patriotism will eventually ride to the country's rescue? Uh, you, people who may disagree with each other about various things, at least recognising they do have that much in common. I think we're going to find that out uh, on November 6th, honestly. I mean, I think a lot rides on the midterm elections and whether or not the, com the country is going to have this as the new normal or it's going to be uh, redemptive. Well, on that ambiguous July 4th note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Brian Klaas and Michael Goldfarb, thank you for joining us. Today's edition of Midori House was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lumichi Okamoto. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next at 1900. It's Matt Alagaya with The Entrepreneurs. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns tomorrow at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>